0: Humans, hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. How are you? And you know what? I just gave you a rousing, rousing, hello, humans. But you know what? It's kind of fake. Because I'm talking to you now, listeners, regularly, you understand that I tape this show, Okay. I'm taping this show on May 29th. We are in the midst of horrific things happening here in the Twin Cities following um, following the horrific death of George Floyd. And so while I, as a um, newscaster, a radio host, whatever we want to call me, okay, have an obligation to the public to try and and, um, lift your spirits. Of course, you know me and I am that way. Um, this is not an easy one for us. Okay. I'll come back and talk about all of that in my C block where I usually do. Um, we have a great, uh, interview coming up with a judge out of, out of Birmingham, Alabama, believe it or not. There's a story there and you'll hear that in the interview segment. Um, but as you know, when I start the show off, I've got my my A block where I talk about um, a featured idealist, either historical or contemporary. And we're getting one. The one that you're going to get is um, Larry Kramer. Again, it's Pride Month. Larry Kramer, big LGBTQ activist. He passed away uh, last week at the age of 84. So let me just um, uh, tell you a little bit about Larry Kramer. Okay. Um, uh, And some of what follows is from a New York Times obituary. So I just need to make sure that I give the time, the NYT credit. So the basics are this. Larry Kramer was born in 1935. He grew up in Maryland as the second of two boys uh, who had not a so great relationship with his father that kind of haunted him his entire life. Uh, Larry Kramer ended up at Yale University as an English major in the early 1950s. Um, and early on, because he was a gay man, he he knew that he was gay going back to when he was uh, barely a teenager. But at Yale, he felt that he was the only gay person on campus, and he attempted suicide. Um, he survived that. It was um, uh, and and um, and then once he survived, he understood that. You know, rather than take his life, what he needed to do was to fight for gay people's worth. So he had a life experience, and out of it he came with a different perspective about how to tackle life. Fast forward to the 1980s. There was this mysterious pneumonia and cancer called Carposi Carposi, Carposi syndrome that was afflicting gay men in San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C., Kramer realized that there was a link um, between um, uh, how gay men um, interacted sexually and the cancer and, and uh, the pneumonia. And what he did is he convened in, in uh, the early 1980, like 1980, convened a meeting of 80 gay men and some doctors in his apartment in New York City to talk about this mysterious disease. And out of that meeting came creation of the gay men's health crisis. It was an organization to help uh, bring attention to how gay men, mainly, were being impacted by this mysterious disease and also how to comfort them as they were dying because they were dying greatly. And of course, as we know what this disease was, the disease was AIDS. But eventually, Kramer did not believe that the gay men's health crisis was being strident enough, that it wasn't being vocal enough about uh, what was happening to gay men across America and, and across the world, and he became the squeaky wheel, pushing them, a time and again, to be more vocal and be more of an advocate on behalf of, of gay men. Because you have to understand, there was barely any kind of medical research that was going on. I mean, we're in the height of the virus right now. You just, I mean, I read last week we gave some, some pharmaceutical company a billion dollars so they could create a vaccine against covid. Well, in the 1980s that was not happening because in the 1980s LGBTQ people were pariahs in our country. So, uh, Larry Kramer said, "Okay," and he kept pushing the men's health crisis. Eventually, they kicked him off his board, off their board because they said he was too too problematic for them. And as the true idealist that Larry Kramer was, he went out and he founded his own organization, Act Up. It stood for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and its hallmark, the hallmarks of ACT UP were public displays of disobedience, like blocking traffic, like going up to politicians and getting into their face on camera. Larry Kramer was arrested dozens of times as ACT UP engaged in acts of civil disobedience. But his vocalizing created controversy which attracted attention. And one of the people whose attention he attracted was a man named Anthony Fauci. This is back in the 1980s before Anthony Fauci was a real name in our country. Yes, it was that Anthony Fauci. And Fauci Fauci, um, eventually helped work to get the federal government to stop dragging its feet on AIDS research and treatment. And as a consequence... Okay. eventually there is no vaccine for AIDS, but there is a very, very effective treatment. And there are many, many people who live with HIV right now um, who uh, that disease does not progress to full blown AIDS because they are on medication that is saving their lives. They are on that medication for decades. And that goes back all the way to act up, forcing the government to start spending money on research. Kramer's also done. Also did other things. He wrote a book titled "Faggots." You heard me say that right? And it's about what it meant to be a gay man living on Fire Island and on Long Island in the early 1980s. It was a brutal and honest account of what it meant to be gay. And the book is one of the leading pieces of gay literature um, uh, that exists even today. It's a very it was a very well selling book. But Larry Kramer became, again, a pariah in the gay community um, because he was so brutally honest about what it meant to be gay. He was even forbidden to go to his local supermarket. Uh, Larry Kramer also wrote the film script for D.H. Lawrence's book, Women in Love. Uh, the movie uh, starred Glenda Jackson, who won an Oscar. Uh, the screenplay was nominated for an Academy Award. He also wrote a number of other plays and um, – and uh, and, and he did a whole lot of, of things, Larry Kramer. He did that even into his 70s and his 80s. Um, one of the quotes from him that is in uh, the, the um, uh, New York Times obituary, where the obituary ends, is this. A quote that, that uh, Larry Kramer said, quote, I was trying to make people united and angry. He's speaking about what he was doing with Hacked Up. I was known as the angriest man in the world, mainly because I discovered that anger got you further than being nice. And when we started to break through in the media, I was better TV than someone who was nice. Unquote. That quote haunts me, frankly, because we're actually seeing right now Um, which I'll talk about in the C-Block, how anger is playing out here in the Twin Cities. It also haunts me in the sense that I am not an angry person. I'm one of reason. I am a practical idealist, but I am not the type to be on a soapbox rallying you to go and uh, stand in front of the police station and burn it down. I am not that kind of a person. And it scares me, that because I am not that way, that my messages about hope and compassion and how we need to change this world will never be heard. More for Block. But I think Larry Kramer is a perfect idealist to highlight right now at this time. So, okay, well, there you go. That's the end of my A block. Uh, When we come back, I'm going to do an interview with Judge Martha Reeves Cook out of Birmingham, Alabama. I think that you will find it of great interest. And then we'll have my C block, where I've got a lot to talk about. Thanks so very much. We'll be back in a second. LE 2.0 Radio.
1: Hi, Alex of Better Futures Minnesota. Does your business or organization need janitorial services, lawn care, or snow services? Obtain a free, no-obligation estimate from Better Futures Minnesota when you mention that you heard about us on AM 950. Our supervised, hardworking, and affordable crews will handle your interior and exterior building and property maintenance needs while you help men in your community transform their lives and walk on a positive path to success. It's a win-win.
0: Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit (laughs) BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we're back on AM 950. This is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Okay, so as I said at the last segment, read up on Larry Kramer and the things that he's accomplished in his life. And now, for the big interview, I have somebody who has accomplished a whole lot in her life as well. I want to welcome Judge Martha Reeves Cook to the line to the, for the big interview. Uh, Judge Cook, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio.
1: Thank you so much, Ellie. I'm so excited to be with you
0: this morning. So, just so the audience has a little bit idea about you, you are currently a judge in Jefferson County in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, you've been serving as a judge uh, not even a, a year because you were appointed, but you're gonna you're gonna get a six year term coming up, um, and that before that you were an attorney for twenty three years, and then a mediator um, in the in the Birmingham uh, area. Um, and uh, you have always been a leader in your community in many ways. I'm looking at a very long resume, but I want to really get to our conversation. So uh, how are you today?
1: I am good. A little sad, um, just in the state of where we are now um, with uh, being quarantined um, and then what's going on in our current events um, As Ellie knows, I have to be careful what I say. I have a lot I want to say, but as a sitting judge, I do have to be very careful on giving my opinions on things. So um, I'm good, but um, I think we as a nation could do a heck of a lot better. So I'm happy to be here. This is a bright spot in my day. (laughs) I've been working from home. Um, We are not yet having in-person proceedings and that's been difficult. As Ellie knows, I'm a people person and I love helping people. So not being in my courtroom to look in the eyes of people that I help every day, you know, by getting their cases resolved and pushing their cases along, it's been, it's been difficult.
0: Well, and our audience right now is wondering how you and I connected. So let me just get that out there very quickly. So okay. audience members, you may remember if you've been a longtime listener to the show, back in February of 2018, I took a 3,300-mile 3, road trip down into the South to go and listen and speak, find out what it was like to be, quote-unquote, other in the Deep South. And part of that had me meeting with the... Uh, Birmingham, Alabama Bar Association's Diversity Committee, and Martha, Judge Cook, Martha at the time, but now Judge Cook, was on that committee. And then we f- we struck up this friendship as a result. Do I have all of that correct? You do.
1: In fact, just so the audience knows, I was a brand-new chair of the Diversity and Inclusivity <laughs> Committee, and Ellie made it very easy because I was sitting there wondering, okay, how am I going to start this year off? I really need to start it off with a bang, and so I get a call, which Ellie loves to kid about her deep voice and her female um, self. So I get this very deep voice uh, message to please call Ellie Krug, which I did. And we had a fabulous conversation on the phone. And then she delighted us all by coming by the Birmingham Bar and talking to my committee. And it, I think, Ellie, it was one of the most eye-opening events for me personally in the last five years. And I just I, I love our friendship. I w- I want to keep it.
0: Thank you. I I cherish our friendship too, Judge Cook. Now, one of the reasons I, there are a lot of reasons why I want to have you on the show, and unfortunately, you know, it's only a limited amount of time. But you know, as I got to know you, you you know, you've grown. You grew up in the South in the seventies and the early eighties, past the civil rights movement per se. But you um, you have a real sense uh, of what it was like back then, and I. You know, Birmingham is a bustling city in the South right now. It has a lot of good things going for it. Could you do me a favor? Tell us what what it was like living in the Birmingham area as you were growing up, you know, relative to how people who are other were treated, and how is it, if at all, different today in Birmingham?
1: Well, just one small correction for the audience. I grew up in Selma, Alabama, that, which most people
0: that's right. know Sorry. is a—
1: and And now, my new home um for the last thirty plus years is in Birmingham, Alabama. and I think of those two cities is very much sister cities and what they've been through historically. But to get to your question, Allie, growing up in Selma, yes, I was born in the late 60s, so post-civil rights movement. But as we all know, we're still in a movement, and we need to keep that movement moving forward. Um, as one of my favorite uh, authors, Brian Stevenson, says in his book, Just Mercy, it wasn't just a three-day carnival affair, the civil rights movement. It was, um you know, it's yep. a much more involved issue. And as I grow older and now live in Birmingham, I can look back and see more clearly what was going on in my childhood. And I'm doing everything I can in my 50s now to be a better human to others. Um, We in in Selma, where I grew up, yes, it was post-Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act. But yes, you very much lived, or I did, in a very much segregated city. You know, we didn't go to church together. We um, would see each other at the grocery store and you, talk. You mean white-colored white, you know, color,
0: white colored people and African-Americans?
1: Cor- correct. Yeah. It okay. was, yep. you know, don't go over to Brown Town. You're not allowed to. Well, of course we did. But, you know, the, the, the older generation, was it, there was still that scary factor of they're different than us. Thankfully, my parents put me into Selma High School, which was an incredible learning experience. I made some fabulous friends and got a real education on life and an excellent education to get ready for college. But being brought out of a only white school as a, a, a junior in high school to be put in a huge public school where I was a minority in the 80s was just You know, and at the time I didn't appreciate it, but I I sure do now. It opened my eyes like they needed to be opened, that this is the real world, sister, you better get with it. And I did. And I've been working toward being a better person to all kinds of others um, in my life, um, and I continue to do it until the day I put that foot in the grave.
0: Well, and so was the school, when uh, you went there for your senior year, was it part of a desegregation plan that— was you know being ordered by federal courts across the country at the time.
1: Well, that was um, that had already been done, and there were um, it was already desegregated. the The school I was brought out of was a private school okay. that you know I'm convinced was um, created just to keep whites and blacks away from each other. The public school that I was put into as an 11th grader and having you know gone to school with these friends all my life and then be plucked out of that to go to this um, large public school, it was more for academics at the time. Um, This public school offered some wonderful advanced placement or AP courses. And thankfully, I was able to get into a lot of those courses and get really ready for college. So it was a strategic plan by my parents. To not only get me into the real world, but to also better prepare me for college. And uh, I have an older sister that didn't have that benefit, and we've talked about it since then. And she said, "You, you mom and dad did the right thing with you. You know, she went off to college not really even knowing how to write a proper essay." Um, and so I think mom and dad saw, uh uh-uh, uh we're we're not doing justice to our child just to say you know stay at the school and so they plucked me and they took my younger siblings out of the same school and put us in to the public education system and i think it was the best thing that happened to it.
0: Wow. And i've got to imagine that when your parents did that that they bucked um, uh, a lot of societal norms and in, ter- in you know in terms of what their friends were doing or maybe even saying. So um, it was huge, go ahead. Ellie.
1: Yeah. I, I know we're limited on time but you know yes it was a big deal i was called traitor i was you know there were a lot of Hurt feelings, But again, now looking back on it, and I tell my parents who thankfully are still alive and in their 80s, I tell them thank you because I know that was hard on them Mar- to leave that school. Martha,
0: I'm going to have to interrupt you. We're going to come back, okay? But I've got to okay. take a break right now, okay? And and uh, uh, listeners, we've been talking to Judge Martha Reeves Cook out of Birmingham, Alabama, a friend of mine, but also adding some great perspective when we come back from the break. uh, We'll pick it back up with her. In the meantime, uh, be back in a second. Thanks.
1: If you're looking to save money on your home or building improvement project check out Better Futures Minnesota's reuse retail warehouse in South Minneapolis. We carry salvage building materials such as cabinetry, flooring, plumbing fixtures, appliances, lighting, and more. Saving you money and saving the planet by keeping these items out of the landfill by giving them another life. Selections change daily and we also take donations. Go to betterfuturesminnesota.com and look under Reuse Warehouse to learn more. Let us know AM950 sent you.
0: We're back on Ellie 2.0 Radio with me, Ellie. <laughs> how are you? All right. Uh, we Before we took our break, we were te- speaking with Judge Martha Reeves Cook um, about growing up in the South in Selma, um, Alabama, and, um, and, and now practicing as a judge in Birmingham. So, uh, Judge Cook, uh, before we took our break, you were talking about how your parents had taken you out of what was essentially a, a white-color... Uh, academy, uh, and put you in the public schools in the Selma, greater Selma area, and that people were calling you traitor and some other names. Uh, Can you explain a little bit more about that?
1: Well, like we mentioned in the earlier segment, I think because um, things, meaning the black and white um, issues, um, were still so raw and still so there, um, it just you know, I think it was difficult for people to see why in the world my parents would do that. Um, and and they just, you know, what I've I've realized now that I look back on it is, you know, we, we believe what we live in and what we hear all the time. That's just, you know, if you keep listening to a certain something over and over and over, that's what you believe. And thankfully, my parents could see a little bit wider lens there and said, We know this is going to be hard on you. I mean, they told me that. I know this is going to be hard on you. And it was, but what a blessing it turned out to be. So, yes, while those mean words were said by the people I left, the school I left, you have to understand there were also some very mean words said to the people who had been going to the public school together for their whole time. And here comes this white girl from across town. You know, there were some mean words said in that school to me as a new person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to a school with a new person, especially in high school. Um, and I'm not saying, oh, poor, pitiful me at all. In fact, I just, you know, b- picked up myself uh, and held my chin up high and said, I'm going to make the most of this. And thankfully, after a while, people came to, you know, include me in things. And I made a a set of friends. And I realized, you know, this is great. Instead of leaving a group of friends, I now have two very good sets of friends. um, And, you know, it just enlightened me more than I realized at the time. So, yes, I think there were mean things said, but it was typical, you know, teenagers and kids just being mean. Um, I thankfully never had something, you know painted on my house or anything. It never went to that level. I just think there were a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of misunderstandings.
0: But what you're just laying out for us right now is the reason why it's so important to go and get to know quote unquote other, to be able to interact, form friendships, because what it does is it changes your perspective about uh, quote unquote those people. It changes your perspective about the world and about humans in general. Do I have that right?
1: Yes. Amen, sister. You do. <laughs> and the thing, too, to, to continue on with that thought, Ellie, is I have two uh, sons now. One's uh, a grown-up, uh, I guess an adult now, even though he's 20. <laughs> doesn't, he doesn't act like one. And then I have an 18-year-old son. And so because I have learned as an, a younger person how to see others in a better perspective, a deeper perspective, I have been able to help teach my sons. To be that way to other people. I mean, they have been raised in a very white suburb, I'll be frank, outside of Birmingham, Alabama. But what I try to do is take my perspectives and not jam them down their throat. That never works. But when I have a teaching moment, like I spoke to my son earlier this week, the 18-year-old who's still at home with me, about the George Floyd matter. And, you know, we had a very um, open discussion about it. And he just flat out said, Mom, that just is not right. And, you know, I realize he is because I have tried to be intentional and get both of them to see things outside of the white bubble that they've been raised in. I try to say that you're correct. That is not right for any human to be treated that way. But it gives them hopefully a perspective to see somebody else's shoes, to walk in their shoes and think, I'm going to stand up for something that I maybe not would not have otherwise.
0: So Judge Cook, and I think that I mean, this is the way it's supposed to work, okay? So I, I know that my audience would be interested to know, what's it like in Birmingham right now, okay? I mean, we are, uh, we're in the midst of, of um, horrible things going on in Minneapolis and, and St. Paul, Uh, And, and largely uh, that a lot of that has to do with disaffected people who do not feel that they're invested in the community in any way. Part of that is about, we do not have a very vibrant middle class of people of color other than the white color here in the twin cities. Tell us what's it like to in Birmingham right now, because you have a greater mixture of, uh, of, of people of different colors in Birmingham and, You know, of course, you have the backdrop of of the Jim Crow history, but what is it like in Birmingham right now?
1: Well, excuse me, Ellie, it is, it's quieter than usual and meaning that because we're all still kind of quarantined and the, you know, I go down to the courthouse to my office there every other day and check on things and work from there and do hearings by phone. Um, But when I go down there to the courthouse, which is usually just a hub of activity you know things just are quiet and it's a little creepy and you know weird going down there when it's not the usual you know the courthouse I work in has the driver's license office the, the you know the revenue office the tax assessor's office all these Offices that people would normally be lining out in the hallway to, you know, register for something or pay their taxes and it's just not there. But I know that people in Birmingham are watching what's going on around the country and I have several good friends that will share with me their very raw feelings about what's going on. So I think Birmingham, um, we have been blessed that we, I do see in my world here, that we talk to one another, blacks and whites, and we do, um, I have tried intentionally to worship, I can't now, but (laughs) to worship with my black friends in their churches. And when I do, it gives me a wonderful perspective of what their daily lives are like. But I see it's still very black and white. I do see that, and I know we have a a, a vibrant middle class um, of colored people, meaning you know of all different colors, um, but there's still that separation. There's that disparity when I drive out to an area called Five Points West and you know, it's a great area. I have several friends that live out there. Um, but it needs some it needs a you know, a shot in the arm to be better and, and have more access to healthy food and, and medical facilities that people don't have to drive into the middle of uh Birmingham and try to find a parking place, which is horrific. Um, when when things are back up and running. And so, you know, it's this access to not only justice, but housing and health care that I know there's still that that there's that line, there's that uh, disparaging uh, mark that people don't have access to those things. And in my court, you're gonna have to cut me off, Ellie, in my court. You know, I hear a lot of eviction cases and a collection account cases. It's a small claims people's court. And when we do open back up, I know what's going to happen. We're going to be overrun, and that's my job. We'll wade through it and we'll get through it. But these are people that are hurting, I see in my courtroom, that are living paycheck to paycheck and probably now don't have a paycheck. So what I see in my courtroom is very real. It shows to me what people, the majority of us in this city probably live like who are trying just day to day to make things work and get things um, to you know pay their bills and get their kids educated and things like that. So while we do have, thanks to UAB and other um, employers and facilities and universities here, we do have a wonderful mixture of races um, and, and middle class and upper class, I guess, um, and lower class. You know, there's still that difference, and I'm trying very hard mm. with my work in my court as being a judge to let people know of all shapes, sizes, ages, colors, you are just as important to me as the person that just came in here before you that may have had an attorney or not, because I see the hurt in their eyes, and people are hurting, and this was before COVID-19. That hurt was there.
0: Well, and and of course, it's been exacerbated by the virus, and and I think that um First, you know, this division, okay, between the haves and the have nots, which has been greatly, greatly exacerbated. I mean, even pre virus, as you've said, it goes, the division goes back to us, you know, making decisions about not funding Head Start, about making decisions about taking away SNAP, you know, uh, food stamp benefits and and and, and, and constricting uh, people's abilities to get a fresh start after they've had a you know some kind of a horrendous event in their lives and so w- we've had this long long thing and i think that what we're witnessing here in minneapolis and the twin cities right now in the aftermath with the with the rioting are people just saying i've had enough the system is rigged and i've had enough of it being rigged Um, Now, that's my commentary, and I know that as a judge, you can't uh, really uh, comment back on that. So, And we only have about three minutes left. So, Judge Cook, here's the big question I ask everybody when they're on the big interview with me, and that is, what made you such an idealist? And I think I have a little bit of an idea, but go ahead. You knew you were going to get this question. What made you so idealistic?
1: Well, I love the term idealist, and I knew you were going to ask me this. Um, I do think I'm an idealist, um, but Ellie, quite frankly, I think I'm trying to be more of a realist, that, you know, to me, an idealist is a great way to live your life, and that it, to me, it means being positive, reaching out to others, being better than, you know, maybe the generation before, trying, you know, hard to be better, um, but in my line of work now, and even before I became a judge, I, I, in my I, being an idealist, I'm trying to apply that to being a realist. In other words, not just stroking over things and saying, oh, look at that, that's just horrible, but stepping out and doing Mm -hmm. something, because I think for way too long we haven't stepped out and done something and asked people, how do you feel about this? Explain to me how it feels for you, this person of color, To be treated that way or, you know, walk by somebody that's white on the sidewalk and they clutch their purse close to them. It's still happening. I mean, I still see those things happening. And it's going to take a long time for us to not be like that to one another. But what I can do as an idealist is go out there and say, I know we can be better. And I'm going to apply that to my life and how I treat people every day and every action. I try to be intentional in how I treat others. And I think slowly and surely it helps other people be idealist and say, you know what, I can be that way too. I can get to know someone that doesn't look like me, that lives in a different zip code. Um, It's not so scary. Um, so I, I guess I'm answering that it's, I'm an idealist trying to put my idealism into realism, if that makes
0: sense. It does. And I, I call myself a practical idealist. So, I mean, it's it, to really be an idealist, you have to act. You have to get engage in action. Right. So, um, you know, you, I, I, as I always say, you can't be an idealist from uh, sitting on your bed in your bedroom. <laughs> it does not. That's, <laughs> no. That, that does not work. Well, listen... Um, uh, I want to just tell you, because we have to go, but Judge Cook, the people of Birmingham are so incredibly lucky to have you. And um, you. and I just look forward to staying in touch with you and learning about how um, you go forward in helping to unify the community in a variety of ways that only judges can do. So thanks so very much for being on my show, Ellie 2.0 Radio.
1: Thank you, Ellie, and bless all of you up in Minneapolis and St. Paul. We are thinking of you and, um, you know, we're here. We're here. We're watching.
0: I appreciate that. Okay, well, thanks so very much. All right, listeners. Well, we've been speaking with Judge Martha Reeves-Cook from Birmingham, Alabama, getting a sense of what it's like to be in a different part of the country. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. I, I love hearing from my listeners, Krug at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Krug. We will be back in a second with my C-block. Thanks.
1: Did you know there is deconstruction funding available now for homeowners and contractors in Hennepin County? If you are embarking on a remodel or teardown this year, consider hiring Better Futures Minnesota's deconstruction crews instead of demolition. By taking a house or building apart by hand instead of destroying it with heavy equipment, the materials can be reused or recycled instead of going into the landfill. It is much more cost effective and is a carbon neutral solution. Go to BetterFuturesMinnesota.com and look under Business Services to learn
0: more. Brending electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit Brendingelectrolysis.com. And she, was lying in the grass, and she could hear the And, she could and we're back on AM950. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Okay, Judge Cook from Birmingham. You know, um, uh, you you know, you may be wondering why did we have her on that show on your show, Ellie? Well, hopefully you understand now. I mean, um, I try and bring you people that maybe you've never ever heard of, of course. Um, but it's interesting when we can learn about their perspective and how perspective changes once you get brave, once you get willing to go and meet people who are different or other than you. So we're in my C block here where I talk about uh, my work and certainly my idealism and my efforts to change the world. And um, this is one of those days where I am, I am sad that this is not a live show because what you're going to be hearing right now um, is stuff that I'm, we're dealing with the last week of May, unfortunately. And frankly, I have no idea of how much worse it may get. Um, hopefully it will get better um, by the time you hear this. But let me give you some reflections, okay? Like many of you, I've seen the images of a Minneapolis police officer's knee on the neck of George Floyd outside of Cup Foods on Chicago Avenue. Unfortunately for Minneapolis, it may become one of the most indelible images of this century. Yeah, no doubt. It will someday, that that image will be displayed someday in the Smithsonian Institute. This, unfortunately, is what Minneapolis will be remembered for. You know that for 52 years, I lived as a white-collar man, an attack dog lawyer making a lot of money with great privilege in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I frankly had no idea even of what the phrase white privilege meant. But all of that changed when I transitioned genders in 2009 and suddenly, snap of the fingers, I became other. And when that happened, slowly but very clearly, I began to understand how the system is geared toward one distinct group of humans. That would be the American system. It is geared towards white-color, Christian, middle-to-upper-income people, particularly men. The system is their system. And I'm here to report that the system is, in rigged, is rigged in favor of that group of humans in a myriad of ways. Again, I did not understand this back when I was a part of that system. Hold on, though. Ellie Krug, white color human, still have a lot of privilege. I know that. I get that. But I also understand I have an obligation now. To talk about how the system is rigged and to do my best to unrig the system. Somewhere along the way, white-colored humans in power decided that pre-K for kids wasn't mandatory and that food stamps, called SNAP, supplemental nutrition something, um, weren't something to keep up, okay? And in fact, that food stamps should be. SNAP benefits should be restricted. Um, Most of all, white-color humans in power decided that it was not important to elevate people who were down on the bottom. One of the ways they did that is that they kept the darn minimum wage at minimum. So, in Minnesota right now, the minimum wage is $9.86. In Minneapolis, it's being stepped up gradually to $15.00. But you know, the minimum wage actually kept with the rate of inflation from the early 1970s, the minimum wage should be $22 per hour. And so what we have right now are people, We you just heard Judge Cook talk about the great divide between the haves and the have-nots. And we are right now in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, we are right now witnessing what happens when you keep people down. Many of the, the, the people who are looting and rioting in the Twin Cities, okay, they are absolutely angry over the death of George Floyd, as they should be. But this is larger than that. This is about the system being rigged and about being unfair. And, and you have people who have no hope because we don 't give them hope, we take hope away. we do and and um, and i 'm reading a book right now, a wonderful book, American Poison by eduardo Porter, um, where he makes one of the points, which is that um, the reason that we 've cut back on welfare, the reason that we we reduced um Uh, Food stamps. The reason that we have have not funded pre-K for universally for for all people is because white color people think that it will benefit people who are not white. All of those things. They think that all of those things, which are like guarantees, guarantees in all of the other industrial words. Oh, we haven't even started to talk about health insurance and health care. All of those things. White colored people in this country believe, no, we're not going to fund that because it's going to benefit people of color other than the white color. And you know what? It is destroying our country. It is. Our selfishness has become the hallmark of Americanism. You know, there's the old saying, Well, pooch, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, well, you will remember that Dr. King said, Yeah, but we you never even gave us boots to pull ourselves up. On top of all of that is the message that you do not matter. We go from slavery. To Jim Crow, to the current era of police killings, voter disenfranchisement, and the idea that unless you are white color, you are less or. And you know what? I understand that a whole lot better now because I am transgender. And the message right now, of course, in the country is that if you are transgender, you do not matter. You are less than worthy. You cannot go to our schools. You cannot participate in our school sports. You cannot use the bathrooms. You can't rent here. You can't have a job here. That is what my community, transgender humans, that's what this country tells us. But I've got it a heck of a lot better because I'm still white color. Imagine being an a African-American transgender woman or transgender man, and then you get all of that coming at you. You know, for my white-color listeners, let me ask you this. I've asked it before, and I'm asking it again, in light of what's happening. How often do you think about the color of your skin? How often do you get looks of disapproval when you enter conference rooms or stores or restaurants or a sporting event? I bet you never do. Maybe you do now because you're wearing masks. Think about that. But that is the reality of being other, of having a color other than white in America because those looks come at you every day, multiple times a day. It's called white spaces where white colored people stake their territory and God forbid you enter it and you are not white. None of this I understood before I became me. Ellie, a transgender woman. I rode my bike through uptown yesterday and midtown after the first day of riots and I saw white color people afraid in uptown it looked like they were getting ready for a hurricane every business was boarded up with plywood fearful of rioters and looters. That is the white color establishment reaction to humans who demand, who, who have demanded something, some equality, dignity for generations. We board up rather than we have conversations, rather than we say we're going to change the system. We need to change this system in a radical way. We need leaders who don't care about polls or money, who are tenacious and relentless in reforming the system. Otherwise, it will be the same old crap. Go to my blog on elliekrug.com and you can read more about this, including my 10-point plan for change. All right. I've got to thank my sponsors, Brending Electrolysis and Better Futures Minnesota. A big thanks to my producer, Patrick. You're doing a really great job today. And to my listeners, please go to my website, elliekrug.com. Go to my blog. Learn and read my 10-point plan for change. I am here to try and change this system. I am. I cannot do it, though, without your help and your support. Everyone, stay safe. Do good. And remember, remember, we need to do better.